Greetings and welcome to this uh, time together at Grace Point Church. Uh, we are glad you are here for the Grace Point family. And also, I want to welcome any guests who are with us today. We are thankful you're here today, too. Uh, we are glad that uh, we have this opportunity and the technology to meet together, uh, at least virtually, if not uh, physically. And we do look forward to the day when we can gather together again uh, in our building and worship together. But uh, today we're going to do this another Sunday. And if you did not get my message, we are going to uh, do uh, partake in the Lord's table together again. I've got my elements prepared here, the bread and the cup. And uh, if you have not prepared yet, you can pause this uh, message right now. You can go get a little cracker or some bread for each person and uh, a cup of juice or whatever you have on hand. And uh, it's interesting that Jesus uh, in 1 Corinthians gives us uh, the reason for doing communion, but he doesn't tell us specifically. So most of our traditions are based upon the Jewish Passover meal and uh, what Jesus did at the first Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. And so we will be doing that towards the end of this message. And so just if you'd like to partake with us, uh, please uh, pause this and go do this right now. Uh, well, again, I'm glad you're here with us today. And it's my privilege uh, to bring the Word of God to you today. And we're going to return to uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And we're going to actually return to the same passage uh, that we looked at last week. It is so rich and so full, plus it sets the stage for the next paragraph. And that's why I emphasize uh, that if we could preach through the whole letter in one setting, it would be uh, the optimum situation uh, because everything is connected. There's an argument to the book. The Apostle Paul is... Uh, as a point to make throughout the whole letter. And so I would encourage you again to sit down and read through the letter to the Colossian church in one setting. It's not very long, about five pages in my copy of scripture. And uh, you can read through that every day and you'll start getting a sense for the whole argument, the whole, whole picture that the Apostle Paul is presenting here today. Uh, as I thought this week about this passage again, and of course it's a passage about prayer, the Apostle Paul has given thanks for the people of Colossae in chapter 1. And again, he uh, continues the prayer here in verses 9 through 14, which we looked at last week, and yet uh, there is more there than we unpacked in one, one session, and so I choose to return there uh, for this Sunday that we uh, participate with the Lord's table together. Uh, so the Apostle Paul is praying again, and there's uh, three things he is praying for here, and it's the priority of prayer, secondly, the products of his prayer, and finally, the power for this prayer, the priorities, the products, and the power. And uh, so if you take notes, uh, you can put those big chunks on your piece of paper, and uh, the priorities of prayer is verse 9, of course, uh, the products of the prayer 10 through the first part of verse 12, and then the power for the prayer in verses, the second part of verse 12 through 14. And so we will look at that today together. And uh, for if you were with us last time for the last message we did here, it'll be somewhat of a review for you. Uh, but that's how we learn, isn't it? By repetition. And uh, so as we repeat this passage, I trust that you will be blessed today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I uh, thank you for each one who is viewing this message and pray, Lord, that you'd use your word even uh, across uh, this city and across uh, this country and around the world as people watch this, that it would uh, change and transform our lives 
and thank you for your word. And we thank you for the blessing of having your word in our own language. And we praise you for that and for those that you've used to make that possible. And we pray today that your Holy Spirit would teach us, guide us, lead us, and that we would grow in Christ. And Lord, in the midst of uh, being sheltered in place and uh, in this uh, pandemic, Lord, uh, we pray uh, for just real perseverance, peace, and just joy, in fact, in the midst of our circumstances. And uh, Lord, that we can soon meet together physically. In Jesus' powerful name, we pray amen and amen. And so, uh, again, uh, if you take your copy of God's Word, turn to the letter to the Colossian believers, chapter 1, in verses 9 through 14. You know, there's an interesting phenomena that all of us, I think, grew up with and live with uh, from day to day, and it's the issue of pleasing people. Uh, every human being desires uh, some acceptance by others, whether it's their own family or friends or a, a social circle or schoolmates or wherever we find ourselves, uh, we want to be accepted by others and therefore we try hard to please others. In fact, those who don't try are a little bit of an aberration in our culture and society, at least in my experience. Uh, so there's this aspect where we attempt to please our parents perhaps, uh, please uh, extended family, our teachers, uh, our bosses and so on. And as we grow older, uh, that desire does not cease, I don't think. And so we want to be pleasing to others in, that, in a healthy way and in a good way. And, uh, and not, all the time it's not accepted that way. And so through the pain of rejection and uh, uh, all of those things that we learn very quickly probably as, as, as children that uh, not everybody is pleased with us. And I was thinking about that. And a more important question, actually, is, uh, is God ever pleased with us? And how does one go about pleasing God? And so the title of this message today is The Truth About Pleasing God. And the Apostle Paul has some very direct uh, answers for us here in this paragraph of this first chapter of the letter to the Colossian believers. <clears throat> I was reading an article, a story about Martin Luther. Now, whether it's apocryphal or not, I don't know. <clears throat> but there is a story that is uh, that uh, I read that Martin Luther one day, of course, he was the great reformer, and he was approached by a working man who wanted to know how he could serve and please the Lord. How could I serve and please the Lord, he asked Martin Luther. And Luther answered and said, and asked him a question. He says, what is the work you do right now? And the man responded that I make shoes, I make shoes for a living. And uh, much uh, to the, this, this shoe cobbler's uh, uh, surprise, uh, Luther responded, you can please the Lord by making the best shoes you can make and selling them at a fair price. Make the best shoes you can and sell them at a fair price. Luther didn't tell this man to just make Christian shoes or to leave everything and go become a monk, he just said, do the best you can where you're at and where, you're, where you are. And so as Christians, uh, what does it mean to please the Lord? And have you ever asked yourself the question, what does it mean to please the Lord? The Apostle Paul has this on his heart and mind too for these Colossian believers that he's writing to. Remember the Apostle Paul is imprisoned in Rome. Uh, some scholars think he was in Ephesus in jail, but uh, I think the, 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 the best solution to that issue is that he is in Rome in prison uh, when you look at the dating of the books. And the Apostle Paul wrote four, four letters from prison in Rome, and they're called the prison letters or prison epistles. And it's, uh, he, he, 
uh, Ephesians, Philippians, uh, Colossians, and Philemon. And so those are the letters from uh, the prison that the Apostle Paul is in. And of course, the historical setting, we know that the Apostle Paul has been visited by a man named Epaphras, who was a, a fellow laborer or co-worker. Epaphras was probably from the city of Colossae over in Asia Minor, some 1,000 miles east of Rome. And the Apostle Paul is getting a report from Epaphras, who is the one who planted this church, and he's bringing back a report about how the church is doing. And of course, as we go further into the letter of Colossians, we are going to see that there's a, a, a pandemic going on, if you will, a virus of false teaching that is invading the church in Colossae. And so the Apostle Paul's purpose is to uh, correct that and to give them God's will for them. Uh, the Apostle Paul is concerned, of course, for these people and for the church that's been planted there and wants it to survive this virus. Of false teaching that's coming its way. And of course, uh, false teaching is not relegated to the first century. It surrounds us today, maybe even more so worldwide, uh, that people don't necessarily uh, attack Jesus Christ, although they do, uh, but false teachers often relegate him to a subsidiary position and offer some called so-called uh, higher truth. And that was what was going on in Colossians. In the, in the Colossian church. And so the Apostle Paul is very concerned about this. And uh, so he begins in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. He says, for this reason also. And of course, that is a, a signpost that points back to the previous context, to the previous couple of verses where uh, Epaphras comes and gives a report about how the Colossian believers are doing, how the Christians in Colossae are doing, and about their love for one another. And uh, so the, the Apostle Paul has already given thanks for them clear back up in verse 3 of chapter 1. And remember, he's addressing this letter to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's addressing it to these believers who make up this church at Colossae. But in verse 9, he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, of course, he just heard from Epaphras, Timothy's there, we have not ceased to pray for you. We have not ceased to pray for you. Uh, and of course, he didn't uh, spend a conscious effort 24-7 to uh, pray for the Colossians, but the idea here is that they were on his mind, on his heart, and as God brought them to his heart and mind, he would pray for them. And so it was kind of a continual concern uh, about them. We have not ceased to pray for you, verse 9, and ask, okay, we see that this is a prayer of supplication, a prayer of intercession, really, because he's interceding on behalf of these other Christians. He's asking something for them. Again in verse 9, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Uh, by the way, this is a great prayer to pray for yourself. This is a great prayer to pray for your children, your grandchildren, those who are in your circle of influence and contacts, your friends, your family, your, your, your friends, you, people at church, uh, wherever you find yourself. This is a great prayer. And sometimes I just pray this prayer and insert, if it's I'm praying for my own spiritual growth, my own spiritual understanding, I pray for that. And I insert myself into this, but you can insert other people. And so this is a great prayer, especially if you have children at home and you're still in the process of rearing them to maturity. You can pray this every day if you want. But the Apostle Paul says, I've not ceased to pray for you and ask that you would be filled, that you would be filled. Uh, this priority of prayer, he's talking about them being filled with something. Now, you think of that term filled, and uh, we think of something, it, it actually means control or 
It means uh, to be completed, to be complete. And we think of uh, the figures of speech we use, like a person might be full of rage or full of anger or full of sadness or perhaps full of happiness, uh, uh, full of joy. And we think about that and we recognize that the reason we say that is because that emotion, particular emotion, is what is controlling that person's life at that moment or during that day. Someone who is full of anger, uh, everything they do is a reflection of that inner attitude, that inner spirit that is filling them. And so this is the Apostle Paul. He wants people to be full. That, that, that word is also used uh, in, in that era of a ship that is ready to go on a voyage and it has been fully equipped. It is ready for the voyage. And, you know, uh, the Christian life is really a journey. It's a voyage. And the Apostle Paul and God himself wants us to be filled, fully equipped, completed for this journey that we're on. Later on in chapter 2, verse 10, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are complete in Christ. And, of course, he's talking about a positional truth there that we have at our disposal all of the completeness, the fullness that God has available to his people. And of course, he's infinite and all powerful and all knowing. And so uh, God has a plan for us there. And what is he praying that we would be filled with, that we would be controlled by, that we would be completed with? It goes on to say, filled with the knowledge of his will, filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, some people think God's will is like some spiritual Easter egg that's hiding out in our yard someplace. We've got to find it. We've got to search around diligently. And yet God's will is God's word. And God's word is revealed to us. His Holy Spirit teaches us, guides us. If you want to know God's will, be involved in his word. Growing in the will of God is knowing the word of God. That is the key. There's no secret. It's not hiding out there somewhere. Uh, in fact, uh, it always uh, kind of tickles me when I hear a radio preacher and his, his uh, uh, title for his ministry is Unlocking the Bible. Well, in uh, my experience as well as as I read God's word, it's not locked at all because the Holy Spirit guides us and leads us in the truth. And so Paul is praying that we would have the knowledge. This, it's actually the word, the Greek word that's used is super knowledge that we would have this super knowledge. We're going to see this idea of knowledge throughout the book of Colossians because the Apostle Paul is combating this false teaching which is talking about a higher knowledge that only some who are spiritual attain. And so he says, the knowledge of his will, and notice that it says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now there's wisdom of the world, you know, you can buy books and books and books on people who are very smart, who seem to be very wise, and yet this is not the kind of wisdom the Apostle Paul is talking about. He is talking about spiritual wisdom. It is wisdom and understanding that only God and the power of his Holy Spirit gives us. Only God in the power of his Holy Spirit gives us. And so this is spiritual wisdom and understanding. The Apostle Paul is emphasizing that the only way to know and have a super knowledge of God's will is when the Holy Spirit guides us through the word of God and we grow in those things and he teaches us together. So the priority of prayer, he gives us, he wants us to have this knowledge of God's will and he gives us the enablement to know God's will through a spiritual wisdom and understanding there in verse 9, the priority of prayer. Then he moves on in this truth about pleasing God, he gives us the so what answer. The so that, if you will, it's the purpose and it's the products of this prayer, the products beginning in verse 10. 
Look at the first two words there, so that. That's an indicator. The reason why he's praying, and this is the result that he's looking for, or the out, outworking of this prayer. He says, uh, so that, <clears throat> excuse me, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And notice this next phrase, to please him in all respects. To please him in all respects. God can be pleased with you. He can be pleased with me. He can be pleased with believers in Jesus Christ because we're walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And that simply means living out the Christian life. It's not super spiritual. It's the fact that we are submissive and yielded to what he's doing. And we have knowledge of his will for our lives. And so that you walk. And that idea of walking is lifestyle. The Apostle Paul uses that word uh, about uh, walking. In fact, in Ephesians 2.10, that great passage of our salvation in Jesus Christ by faith alone, uh, he says that uh, so that we would do good works, we would walk in these good works that God has prepared beforehand. Isn't that interesting? Even the good works that come our way, we have not uh, invented or designed. God has brought them into our pathway of life. And when we respond to those things, we're walking in them. It's a lifestyle. And so he says that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. That is a challenging, just short phrase right there, to please him in all respects. He's talking about the whole totality of our lives, how we live out the Christian life. And I, I've been convicted personally. The Holy Spirit's held me down by the short hairs here. Uh, this week, do I please God in everything I do, in all respects, my thought life, the things I pay attention to, the things I give my life to, the things that just, uh, in how I use my time, all of those things. And it has been challenging for me. It has been challenging for me personally. And then he goes on and he gives us <clears throat> four marks of pleasing God here, four marks of pleasing God. Look at the first one. In, <clears throat> to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. Uh, bearing fruit, that's fruitfulness or productivity, but it's not something we produce. We simply distribute what God is already producing in our lives. Uh, oftentimes, Christians think we have to invent and, and be in the production line, when in reality, we're simply in distribution because God does the produ production. And I think of this time of year in spring when, when uh, the fruitfulness of this land is coming forth, when uh, the farmers are planting, we're looking forward to a harvest and we think of, uh, you know, whether it's apple trees or orchards, wherever, and how uh, those, those things just come about and uh, the fruitfulness is built into the system. Bearing fruit in every good word, that's the first one, that we would be fruitful. The second one is growth. The second one is growth increasing in the knowledge of God. Here we hear that word knowledge again. He's praying that we, up above, that we'd have the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. And here that we would be growing, increasing in the knowledge of God. So that's spiritual growth. You know, uh, we need to be lifelong learners and not just learning about it, but living it out, that God would live it out through us as we learn more and more about God's will. So fruitfulness, growth. The third one is power, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. There's two different words here used for power, and the first one is God's inherent power. We know from Scripture, and of course by mere definition, no matter uh, if you're talking about the God of the Bible or not, God has to be totally uh, all-powerful, uh, all-powerful. And so that is inherent power, strengthened with all power, speaking about God's power, according to his glorious might. 
and it's his glorious actions in our lives. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it was through his power, his glorious might, that he opened your eyes to the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. You believed in him for everlasting life, and you are secure in him, uh, and you will uh, see him face to face in glory. And so God gives us this power, so fruitfulness, growth, power. The fourth one is gratitude <clears throat> for the attaining, oh, excuse me, let me back up here. This, this power, strengthened with power for the attaining of steadfastness and patience, steadfastness and patience. I almost skipped over this, it's, but it's important because right now uh, in our current situation, uh, we believe that there is great adversity, uh, not as great as in some periods of history, but yet we still need steadfastness and patience. Now, steadfastness is with our circumstances. It's like standing firm in the midst of the cruel winds of our circumstances. And yet, uh, patience has more to do with people. Uh, now, you may be stuck in a house uh, with a lot of little children running around and you're trying to do all these things and your patience is wearing thin. I have a, a young friend uh, who says that her kids get on her last nerve. And you know there's a, a desire that we have to have patience. So we're strengthened with power till we attain steadfastness, standing firm, patience. So remember that the power comes from God to do those things, to stand in the midst of difficult circumstances, whatever yours may be. It may be even beyond uh, this sheltering in place and this pandemic that we're experiencing. And so remember, steadfastness and patience. The fourth one, we have fruitfulness, growth, power. The fourth one is thankfulness, gratitude. Look at verse 12, give thanks to the Father. Give thanks to the Father. You know, when we are a people of gratitude, uh, there is very little room and hopefully no room for bitterness and complaining uh, And when you are thankful. In fact, uh, one of the things that uh, we need to practice is when we are feeling bitter and upset and angry is to thank God for the things we do have. I've often said that, uh, you know, it's a good thing exercise when you lay your head on your pillow at night to just give, go through your day and thank God for his work in your life, to have eyes to see his blessing. I just finished, uh, I've read a series of books uh, about the, the Marines during World War II and in the battles and combat in South Pacific. Eugene Sledge uh, wrote a very good book and uh, he was in the Battle of Peleliu and the Battle of Okinawa towards the end of the war. But towards the end of the book, he talks about for two years, he didn't sleep in a real bed. He slept in foxholes in the mud and the water and his servant, it was just awful, just terrible. And I was thinking about that and thinking that, boy, I, just giving thanks for the sh clean sheets in a bed, uh, you know, be a person of gratitude to the Father. So we've had the priorities of prayer, uh, the products of this prayer. And finally, where does the power come? This is not something that we well up in ourselves, but where does the power come from? Look at verse uh, 12, joyously giving thanks in the Father. And there are excuse me, four reasons for joy today, four reasons for joy. Uh, he tells us the first one, who has qualified us to share, to qualified us. We don't qualify ourselves. Can you imagine God saying, you are qualified? Well, the only reason he does that is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. The moment you believed in Christ for everlasting life, you were justified is the theological term. You were justified, which means to be declared righteous, not on the basis of my own righteousness. I have no righteousness for all have sinned and fall short of the righteousness of God. 
And so to be qualified means that Jesus Christ has given us, he's put it to our account, his own righteousness, which is pure, perfect, and holy. He took our place on the cross of Calvary. So he has qualified us. That is a reason for joy. In Lewis Berry Chafer's Systematic Theology, he gives some 32 or 33 uh, results of what we call salvation. And it's a wonderful study. But one of these is we are qualified. And what are we qualified for? He tells us we're qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so we are not only have a qualification, but we have an inheritance. Any of you who've received an inheritance, it's probably because it's nothing you've done or nothing you've, you've worked for. It's uh, maybe it was from your parents or grandparents, and they're the ones who saved, and, and whether it was money or property or, or belongings, and they protected those things, and they handed them down to you because you're related to them. In some fashion, you were related. Well, here we are related, rightly related to Jesus Christ because of what he's done, and we have an inheritance, uh, share in this inheritance with the saints in light. Of course, light is a metaphor for holiness, perfection of God. And darkness is a, is a metaphor for evil and sin. And so we have this inheritance with the saints. Again, uh, we are called the ones set apart, holy ones unto God because of what Jesus Christ has done. So we are qualified. We have an inheritance. The third reason for joy is, is uh, a deliverance, is deliverance. He, verse 13, for he has rescued us from the domain of darkness. And there's that metaphor again of darkness. Uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible tells us. But he has rescued us. He has uh, saved us, delivered us from being hellbound. All of humanity is hellbound without the intervention of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And God desires all men, all women, all children to be saved. Uh, that's his desired will. And so God uh, has provided a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, qualified, inherited. Inheritance delivered, and finally, transference, transference. Look at this in verse 12, 13, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The kingdom of his beloved son. It's not, it's not uh, anything that we did. We didn't have to buy a ticket to get this transfer, uh, but God has transferred us because of what Jesus Christ has done into this kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate one. And so there are the four reasons for joy. And then in verses, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> verse 14, I call them the stupendous benefits. Now, I don't use that word uh, stupendous uh, probably in any, any, any sentence other than right here today. But it came to my mind as I looked at these benefits. And then I had to look, what does stupendous really mean? Let me read it for you. Stupendous means that it, uh, let me see here, causes astonishment, causes astonishment, wonder, awesomeness and marvel causes astonishment awesomeness and marvelous it's a marvelous thing look at verse 14 in whom he's talking about jesus christ his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins redemption and the forgiveness of sins you can't get more stupendous than that we have been redeemed and the picture is as of a slave market a slave market of sin and being hell bound in our bondage and we've been redeemed, bought with the price. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, burying our sins, but he gained the victory over sin and death in the resurrection and ascension, <coughs> excuse me, to the right hand of the Father. <coughs> and then the forgiveness of sins. 
He took all the sins of the world upon him on that cross in, in Jerusalem and bore the sins of the world. He took them all on himself, and that price has been paid. We are redeemed and forgiven. The redemption, the forgiveness, these stupendous benefits, stupendous benefits. And that's why we go to this Lord's table. We go to the Lord's table, and hopefully you've prepared that you have a cup of juice of some kind and a cracker or a piece of bread for each one that's with you. And we are going to celebrate the Lord's table together. Remember, there are two ordinances in the church. One is believers baptism the other one <clears throat> excuse me is the lord's table communion lord's supper and of course it was born out of the jewish passover if you were with us last month when we part participated or, or or watched our missionary olivier melnick do messiah in the passover you understand and have at least some background about the passover meal and how it's celebrated even today but yet all the pictures of the coming messiah the lord jesus christ yeshua as he came uh, to redeem us and to forgive us for our sins. Well, the central proposition for the New Testament church, or central, excuse me, central passage, is found, of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul is giving instructions. We, we get a lot of instruction out of the letters to the Corinthian church, and uh, the Corinthians sometimes served as a bad example of what it meant to be the church, and he's correcting some of their practices as well as their attitudes as well as their beliefs. But the Lord Jesus Christ gave these instructions to the Apostle Paul, which he in turn gives to his church, to the church of Jesus. And that's us, because it comes down through the centuries to us, and it's authoritative and authentic and trustworthy. And Paul writes there in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that in the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And of course, he's referring back to Luke chapter 22, that first Lord's Supper when he and the disciples had the Passover meal together. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So if you are uh, prepared and ready, uh, take your piece of bread. Here I have, because of the Messiah and the Passover meal, I happen to have some matzah, which is the uh, Jewish flatbread, unleavened bread. But uh, Jesus uh, took something similar on that night and broke it and distributed it to each one of the disciples I wish I could distribute it to you, that we could pass it out like we used to. Uh, but uh, if you would take yours, and notice that Jesus said, <clears throat> this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Of course, he said this before he was crucified. But he's talking about uh, the body of Christ, which the church is often called the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. And just as there are many ingredients that make up this one uh, piece of bread, uh, the church is made up of many ingredients, many different tribes, tongues, nations, different peoples, even a local congregation like Grace Point. We are a diverse group, and yet we come together because we are bonded together through Jesus Christ because of him and he alone. And so he tells us twice in this passage, do this in remembrance of me. And I'm always challenged by that. What do I remember about Jesus? Of course, I remember about my own rescue, deliverance, the fact that I'm uh, transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, that I'm qualified because of what Jesus has done. And so we do this to remind ourselves. So today, if you would partake with me as we remember what Jesus has done. It tells us that in the same way, he took the cup. And of course, from our studies uh, about Passover, it was there were four cups, and this was the cup of redemption, the third cup. 
And he took this cup, or, cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The covenant is a, a, a relationship between God and his people. And there are conditional covenants and unconditional covenants in Scripture. And unconditional covenants only require that they be fulfilled by one of the parties. And that's what we see here is that God has promised a Messiah, a Redeemer, a Savior. And only he is going to fulfill that. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this new covenant that his, in his blood shed for you and I, that uh, we have a future and a hope. New covenant in my blood. And so as often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake together and remember our Savior. And then he tells us, and we wonder, here we are, physically separated, but gathered through this technology. What have we just accomplished? Verse 26 says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are standing firm. We are standing solid. We are standing unified because we believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. But we also believe in him that everything he said all the future promises are going to come true. And this is one of them, the second coming of Christ. It's a fundamental of the evangelical faith. If you, are, if you don't believe in the second coming, you are not a Christian. That's just a basic fundamental issue. Uh, and so this is one of the fundamentals. And that we are just declaring that we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all of the benefits and blessings we have. Our qualification, our inheritance, our deliverance, our transference to the kingdom of his beloved son. So blessings today. Let me pray as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great work and your blessing in our lives. We praise you for your holiness, your goodness. Thank you for your word this morning. For it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen and amen. Have a blessed week and enjoy each day that you have. God bless. Please stand as the church scattered worships together.